3D printing has been around longer than most people think. It was first invented by an American engineer, Chuck Hole, in the early 1980s. Despite its nearly 40-year existence, 3D printing has yet to take off as a viable alternative to widely accepted manufacturing processes such as injection molding. The technology remains fraught with issues such as low yield and high material costs. In February of 2011, The Economist ran a story called Print Me a Stradivarius, and even then, the idea of mass printing of physical objects still seemed out of reach. However, over the past few years, 3D printing has finally evolved beyond a mere hobbyist tool and is now at the cusp of becoming a scalable manufacturing process. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Imagine Human. This episode is a bit longer than previous ones, but the content is informative in describing how 3D printing stands to revolutionize levels of manufacturing across many industries. Today, we interviewed Chris Bruchet, founder of Origin, a company closing the gap between 3D printing and what Chris identifies as the three major deficiencies preventing this technology from moving to the next stage. In our discussion, we explore the current state of global manufacturing. Chris shares how his experience working with consumer products has translated into solutions for these three pain points from software innovation and cost savings perspectives. Chris shares details about the technology Origin will be debuting to the market later this year and reasons for the approach they have taken compared to their competitors. Finally, Chris shares his vision for 3D printing in creating impossible geometry and new classes of products in industries like high-performance footwear for mass customization. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for coming today. Why don't we get started? We want to learn a little bit more about you. Where did you grow up, and how do you think that actually influenced your path today? So I uh, grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, um, so southeastern Michigan, kind of born and raised there. I went to school and lived in Ann Arbor. Um, and, uh, you know, my family uh, essentially worked in the auto industry for many generations. So on both sides, on my dad's side, um, you know, it goes all the way back to the Ford Highland Park assembly plant where my great grandfather, maybe great great grandfather, um, worked on assembling uh, at the time, I think they're Model Ts. Um, and um, going down, down the pipeline there, uh, his son, and, and then all the way down to my dad, worked for General Motors. And on my mom's side, um, my uh, grandparents immigrated from uh, Great Britain in the 19, late 1950s, after the war, um, when they're still rebuilding the place. And my grandfather also worked at General Motors and retired in the 1980s, where he was, um, I believe, uh, vice president of East Coast Production. And uh, so my family has been heavily invested in the auto industry. And I'm the first generation not to be. And um, growing up, the auto industry was declining pretty heavily, uh, both from you know the the number of units, uh, the number of vehicles that the big three were shipping every year actually was increasing for most years. Um, but Michigan, places like Flint and Detroit, got decimated because they had actually moved production to other states. And so I think a lot of people believe that uh, you know the 
foreign automakers really hurt the auto industry, but it was just all, you know, production was increasing. It, it was, you know, the, the fact that a lot of it had moved to Canada, a lot of it had moved to the South. Um, and also you needed less people to work in the factories. Um, every year you need less and less people because of automation. Um, and, and so you ended up getting uh, areas of Michigan that become, uh, after 1960 or late 1960s, um, became uh, very, you know, uh, poor. It's the best way to say it. And uh, so me growing up, uh, the new way of making things, uh, being around a lot of mechanical aspects of the auto industry, and I worked in a uh, for a motorsports company in college as well, doing mostly web development. But, uh, uh, was sort of making software. And, um, you, you know, so uh, I, I think, um, getting a little ahead of myself, but you know, going to what, what I'm doing now, it's, it's more the intersection of software and hardware making things. And uh, I think that auto industry heritage has really shaped uh, who I am now. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and people often don't realize that the United States is still the second largest manufacturer in the world, despite the fact that you know far fewer people probably work in manufacturing now than ever did in the United States. Um, what do you think of the future of manufacturing? Um, I think it's very relatively bright in the U.S. I think there's the you know uh, people don't realize this, but manufacturing in the U.S. is is pretty close to a three trillion dollar industry. Um, so it's about on par with China. And so when we, when we kind of look at the manufacturing macro worldwide, it's pretty safe to say that, you know, about one-third is China, um, one-third is the United States, and one-third is Europe. And there's sort of like everything else, including the rest of Asia. Um, so we still have a very large manufacturing industry. People don't realize that. And, um, you know, automation is taking hold. So I think the future for blue-collar assembly jobs, that's certainly numbered. And that's that's going to get worse and worse, um, but the actual um, industry itself, I think you know it's, it's probably at a, at a low point where I think that because the cost of labor in China, Asia has increased. Um, you know I believe um, I don't have the exact numbers here, but but I know in, in in some parts of China, salaries have moved up eight to ten times for laborers, especially in like the Shenzhen area. Um, that's happening while our wage is mostly stagnant uh, for you know manufacturing products, and because uh, a lot of production in Asia is moving over to automation, you kind of level the playing ground uh, to some aspect. And um, I, I think the thing that's really telling there is when we started um, here at Origin, we initially did a lot of production in China, and actually quickly realized the cost of doing production in the United States isn't substantially higher. Actually, when you really um, bake in the additional support and people on the ground you need in Asia, you have a, a tighter operation here in the US, uh, we're generally able to save money by doing more and more production here. And I think uh, a lot of new startups you know, are, are starting to look at doing production in the United States. And even if you, you go through a, a larger contract manufacturer, say like Flex, um, they have a, a factory here in the Bay Area. Um, for example, the, the Glowforge is produced there at a, at a very low cost. Um, so I think you're going to see more and more of that. And I think that shows, a, you know, hopefully we're at the, bot the bottom of our manufacturing industry.
in terms of growth um, and decay, and, and um, you know we're upwards and onwards from here. Um, with that said, I, I don't think manufacturing is going to slow down in, in the East either. So we talked a lot about Formlabs and other companies and competitors in the space and kind of the evolution of additive manufacturing. What are you guys doing that's different or that's going to really help resolve some of the problems and issues that a lot of these stakeholders have in terms of manufacturing the parts in very short sprints? What's the value add? And to add on to that question, I guess you mentioned that that was uh, in 2015. So what are the insights that you've gotten since, since then? And like, how is it different from when you started? Yeah. Um, so for the, the first part of that question, when we kind of look at the competitive landscape, they are predominantly focused on prototyping. Uh, so for example, when you look at a, a you know, company like, say, Formlabs, it's a great example, where they had moved up market into the um, prosumer space and now are sort of dabbling with enterprise. Um, I, I think you'll see this also reflected in, in their sales. Most of their sales go to, you know, they, they go to businesses, but they go to businesses for prototyping. You know, there's, as far as I know, people aren't producing millions of products on, on their systems. And I think um, there's a lot of reasons why they don't. And, um, I think the the first the, the biggest reason why someone is not going to be producing products on, on a lot of these end use systems there's sort of the quality issues, um, but but I think a lot of these co these companies are pushing past that. And Form Labs now makes a great product, um, but its cost per part cost for these systems is still too high. And when you kind of look at uh, cost and what makes up cost in additive manufacturing, you're going to see that. Um, if, if you actually design for the process, you, what we call DFM, um, the labor costs for uh, running an additive manufacturing system is not that high. It's very high if you don't, if you're making an injection molded part uh, design, doing all the support structures and stuff like you do in a prototype, you may spend hours post-processing the part. And when you look at that, you go, wow, that'll never scale. But when you, when you, when you DFM for it and you design for it, and we can get into what that what that means because I think it's a very interesting space. Um, you can potentially produce a part that it comes off of the printer um, and without virtually any post processing or, or very um, easily repeatable post processing. Um, it it can be used right in production. And so when you look at the at the cost there, uh, your two biggest costs that that we see as we run an internal additive operation um, that plan to scale up is going to be material cost and it's also going um, you know to, to be some auxiliary costs the cost of the system um, but uh, a very interesting cost for, for many systems can be yield and so I think Autodesk did a study in, in 2015 they found that um, about three-fourths of 3d prints failed and when you compare that to manufacturing Six Sigma um, you're looking at maybe a defect in millions of parts when three-fourths of your, your parts are garbage, um, your costs go way up. I mean, this is why semiconductors are expensive, right? When your, your, your yields are poor, uh, the price of semiconductors goes way up. And so um, there's a, a very few systems in the market that are very, very reliable. Um, that are, I don't know of any system that you know is close to Six Sigma reliability. Um, 
there, there, there's potentially some, um, I think, uh, Invisalign. They use a bunch of 3D systems printers. And um, I don't know their exact numbers, but I, I know that they're actually pretty relatively close. And, and that may be the only example in the industry where, where quality is that high, and repeatability is that high. All these, and, and those systems are very expensive and they, they have 20 years of um, building a process around it to, to, to get repeatability high. I think all these other systems, you know, the repeatability is not going to be that high. Your, your yields are going to be poor. Um, so so that, that's a huge uh, aspect of the cost. The others, which I find more interesting, is uh, material costs. And, um, you know, material costs currently in our, in our market, every 3D printing company in, on the industrial side produces their own materials that I know of. Um, or they rebrand others, even ones that have semi-open platforms. They, they all have their own brand of materials. And these aren't material companies. They're not big like BASF and have a hundred and something thousand employees working on new chemistries and owning the supply chain. Um, they're relatively small and they have very relatively small teams. Um, and they produce these materials that they then tie to their platform. And so if you get a system, let's say from uh, Form Labs, while the um, say their SLA printer Form Two has an open mode, it uh, it turns a lot of the features of the printer off. And um, and, and we we have Form Twos here in, in in house, and there's so much friction to use a third party material, um, and you don't have access to the settings on the system. Um, they open source some of the earlier stuff. It's not really good enough for manufacturing. The Form Two is much closer, um, but you don't have those low level settings. And so material companies that formulate for it, they have to design the material for the system. And there's so many compromises. You, the materials aren't that great compared to what Form Labs already is shipping um, that, that we've seen. And so you add all those things together and you're kind of locked into their ecosystem. And this is the same for all the industrial companies, 3D Systems, uh, Stratasys. Uh, 3D Systems actually sued TSM, which is one of the larger um, material companies. I think they're in the top 10. Uh, largest material companies in the world, maybe top 20. And um, DSM was making materials for 3D systems printers. And uh, in, in the US, the 3D systems won. And so they've actually, they, they've essentially put DRM on the material where you can only put the 3D systems material in, in the machine um, and it won't work with anything else. Um, and it uses a chip to validate that you're actually using the, the authentic Material and when you think about this, it's similar to like your inkjet printer with its chip. You run out of ink, you can't refill it, and so you have to hack the chip and do all this stuff. And um, and our, our industry has just totally copied the two D uh, printer business model. Yeah. They just they saw that as a great reference apparently, and um, and and for prototyping, we actually learned prototyping is inelastic. So if if your part is three hundred dollars or two thousand dollars. Uh, to produce, as long as it's produced quickly, um, you know, companies don't care. They're not producing a million of these parts. They're producing a couple of them. And so with a, you know, sort of that inelasticity of, of prototyping, we're, they're able to create the ultimate business model, which is the Gillette or the HP Jet model, uh, Gillette razor blade model. And um, it's just proliferated throughout our industry. And, and when you're looking at producing a million of something, that business model just doesn't work. So you, you can't produce, no matter how good the yields are, what the quality is, if, if you can't, if your materials cost 
400 to $1,200 per, per kilogram, which is what you're going to see from a lot of companies um, in, in our space, that'll never compete with a $2 or $3 material that you use in injection molding as a commodity, um, like ABS pellets that you can buy in the open market. And so we, you know, looking just at, at that business model, we think that the fact that you have these closed systems and then you also have poor yield and poor quality, though, though a lot of these companies are doing much better in quality. Those are sort of like the three pillars that I see that stop adoption of mass additive manufacturing, you know, producing millions of a midsole in a shoe or moving over entire industries um, like MRO replacement parts over, over to additive manufacturing. And uh, so those are the three pillars that Origin is working on to solve. Um, and there's, there's no magic bullet there. Um, you know, some of this we'll, we'll be announcing more stuff in 2018 as a company. Um, but one thing that we do have is a fully open platform. Um, and that open platform aligns us with our customers where we're not selling them overpriced ink for their system. Um, they're able to use materials from a, a variety of uh, providers. And, um, and going into 2018, it's not just open, no strategy, throw whatever material you want at the system, um, because that's not going to be reliable. Um, in fact, one of the arguments that you'll hear these companies make is that for reliability to continually improve, they have to have full control of the materials. And um, so we're working on um, sort of a, a product solution, not just a, a, a principled solution, that uh, elevates our open platform um, to, to allow other companies to produce materials that are actually, quite frankly, much better than if we produce them in-house because they take the advantages they have as companies um, and they're, they're able to apply it to our platform. And um, in, in some cases, material companies are, are iterating materials four or five times per day. And um, you, know, you look at, for example, the HP Multi-Jet Fusion printer, it takes over six months to validate a material on their system. And they have a semi-open platform. They don't open the actual inkjet component, they open the powder component. Um, and it, it, it takes a very long time to iterate. And uh, you know, fast iteration allows material companies to get to a much uh, lower cost, much higher performing material um, than you would otherwise have. So what is the business model for Origin? Are you guys selling printers? Or are you guys selling software? Where do you see this going? So um, we're primarily a software company. Um, over half of our headcount is, is software, software focused, uh, testing focused. Our hardware team is very small. Um, we are producing a what we call a reference system. Um, so it's a, um, we're actually producing a couple of them. But it's essentially a, a sort of modular printing platform that is entirely software driven. And um, we've moved as much complexity out of the hardware as we, we could and moved it into software. And the best way to do that is just not have too many hardware engineers. There's literally a limit to what they can engineer <laughs> and uh, have more software engineers. They, they think about um, how, how they can solve a lot of these problems in, in, in software. And um, that's sort of the basis and the principle of how we develop our system. And the reason we're developing hardware 
in, um, in sort of in conjunction with software is because when you kind of think about it, it's pretty intuitive. In our space, I think there's sort of two primary things you can you can produce in, in, in our space because it's an early market. You can produce, you can you can be a manufacturer and you can produce end use parts for whatever customer. Um, we call those service bureaus, larger ones, start calling them additive manufacturers. Um, and there's there's a there's a ton of examples of, of companies um, that that are doing this like Fast Radius or Sculptio, um, even uh, Shapeways, which is tied to digital marketplace um, to their service bureau aspect. Uh, that's a great way to generate revenue. Most of those companies buy existing systems. Sometimes there's there's less differentiation. Um, I think you'll see companies like Fast Radius. They're starting to differentiate themselves by building logistics layers and other um, software layers on top of you know, existing hardware layers. That's very interesting. Um, on the other side, you can sort of produce that turnkey system. It's the combination of the hardware, the software, the service. Um, great examples are the 3D systems and Stratasys, the two bigger players in our market. You have Carbon, who's a newcomer, um, you know, that has a over a billion dollar valuation last I checked. Um, Form Labs, another great example in the prosumer space, moving up market. Uh, Mark Forge, um, they, they make um, systems for composite materials using sort of a MakerBot-like technology. Um, so you kind of look at that, that, they make up the bulk of our market. And then you kind of look at sort of the in-betweens. The only software company I know that actually has done well, and they're actually not a pure software company, they're, they're a service bureau as well, is Materialize in Europe. They make most of the print process software that all these service bureaus use for manufacturing. And there's NetFab, which Autodesk owns, um, and that's it. There's those two pieces of software, and that's what everyone uses. Um, and uh, if you're, we see tons of startups come into the market every year with software solutions, and none of them have stuck. They've all failed. I don't know of anybody that is doing as well as Materialize um, that has started in the last five years that hasn't ultimately branched out. Uh, most of these companies, um, for example, there's there's 3D Printer OS, which is trying to create a consolidated platform, and they've started branching out. Um, I'm not sure how well they're actually doing. Um, they're definitely in a small minority of companies that are still around. Um, so when we kind of look at that, we, we realized that to get to market, you need a complete solution. And um, our lead investor, Mike Maples, has a philosophy um, a, a, around er, early markets in general, sort of needing these, these complete solutions. We don't want to be dependent on other companies. We used to work with Autodesk and we're a little bit dependent on their hardware iteration cycle. And they're, they're not a hardware company. Um, and so as a startup, we want to kind of control our own destiny. And that, that brought us into the, the hardware business. Um, and now we're working on building a fully integrated turnkey system for our for manufacturers and, and brands. Um, so I would love to ask you, what were your biggest challenges in, in terms of getting into hardware? Also, what were your highest points and lowest points so far? I think the, the biggest challenge getting into hardware uh, as a, you know, my uh, co-founder is from Google X. He's a software engineer. I was a software engineer at Apple. Um, but we didn't have 
you know, we had some maker style hands-on hardware experience, but nothing, um, I, I would never imagine creating a hardware startup like three years ago. Let's just put it that way. And um, so there was, there, was a, there was a very large learning curve to really getting started with hardware. And I think um, we had worked with a variety of off-the-shelf hardware. We started hiring mechanical engineers in 2016, early 2016. That got our feet wet, and um, after we raised a, um, you know, our first price round of funding, which we still haven't announced, and we will announce that um, hopefully before our next one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but after that, we um, we had the resources to get much more serious with hardware, and um, and we were able to hire a proper hardware team. And uh, part of that was we we had hired some folks from Autodesk. Um, and part of that was we went out and we went to seek people that we thought would perform well and just say, you know, we've been relatively lucky and, you know, we, we've hired a, a good team um, to date that's, you know, been able to execute uh, hardware in a, in a pretty effective way. Um, and, you know, we're, we're now on our internally, we've developed over 10 generations of hardware systems in less than a year, um, including ones we've already shipped sort of in stealth um, to partner companies. Um, and we're on track to have a 20, early 2018 public launch of the company um, and all of our product. Um, so I, I think some aspects is we got lucky, but we also had this sort of like nice lead in where we really worked with hardware and a bunch of the adjacent hardware engineers until we had to make you know, more serious hires. Um, and then on the uh, other side was sort of the big ups and downs, right? Yeah. So uh, big, big ups and downs. There's, that startup's like a sine wave, right? It's like a roller coaster. Um, I think, so actually, I think the, um, surprisingly for us, fundraising hasn't been a too big of a headache in general. Um, and so we haven't really had too many bigs up big downs or really ups um, in terms of fundraising. It's been a relatively smooth um, going forward. I, I think our big ups and downs have been with product and customers. So we, um, you know, we, a big down was when we were producing, in, when we just started, we we're actually founded in November, 2015. And that's when we shipped our first product with a brand. And it's a very, very, uh, you know, only a couple of weeks to be able to sort of pull everything together. And um, there was a period of time where we weren't sleeping and we didn't think that we'd be able to ship this product. Um, the, uh, we, we developed this multicolor technology to, to be able to um, use essentially a stereolithography resin-based printing system um, and, and do multiple colors. And... Um, it was, it was very primitive at the time and sort of a prototype. And uh, the customer decided that it had to be multiple colors. And we go, well, shit, what do we have to lose, right? Like, we either try to make this multiple colors or like they're not gonna ship it. Uh, they're not gonna ship the product. And, and so then we produced close to a thousand with a process and the quality is terrible. Uh, <laughs> it was not what we had in, with the prototype system 
And um, instead of shipping that, we decided to scrap a uh, thousand products, a barrel full of material that, that we purchased to produce these products. Um, and we actually spent two days reworking a lot of the software in this case um, to make the process actually work sort of at scale. Um, and that put us way behind. And that was a huge low, yeah. I, I think. And we, we, didn't, we didn't sleep. And then, then we started producing the product. And um, there's definitely issues with, with the yield and there's issues with the product uh, post-shipping. But the, um, the, the big issue at that point now was the timeline. So we were, we were producing hundreds of units per day on three, maybe four small printers. Um, one person essentially doing most of the printing, um, which, is, which is a pretty reasonable yield, um, uh, and pretty reasonable throughput for what we had. But now we, we only had about a day or two to produce them all. And so that was a, a huge low and we missed the deadline. And uh, luckily um, they were able to uh, hold the, uh, they, they, they wanted to install these smart tags on the shoes like pretty early on. And um, the Italian manufacturer, the factory that actually made these things, um, uh, our, our customers kind of argued with them and you know got them to put the smart tags on on the second and last day to like right when they had to ship back to the US. And we, we luckily shipped the last smart tags about five minutes before the FedEx truck left. <laughs> so to, to Italy, um, if we missed that, then it was for them, it was all or nothing. Either all these had all these smart tags had to be on the shoes or there's none. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that was a low and then it was up after we did that. Um, and then there was an issue with, with some of the uh, smart tag technology, which I believe was figured out. So that was a low afterwards. And, um, and, and so we kind of had a lot of ups and downs. Um, we also had uh, a case where we shipped product in 2016. So to give some context, we've actually shipped uh, almost 20,000 products in our, in our previous facility um, on early versions of our platform for, for relatively major brands uh, without our name on it. And I think the biggest risk for us was shipping a product that was defective, like ultimately defective. And uh, we ended up doing that. We ended up shipping a, a product where the material actually, um, you know, essentially degraded and um, potentially uh, damaged other people's products or the, the product that was on attached to. Can you describe it or no? Yeah, we, um, <laughs> it's it's a, it was in the apparel industry. Um, I don't want to single anybody out. <laughs> But uh, it, that was something, so we had to recall uh, the, the products we produced and, and we produced um, the same products with a different material like a month later or something. And um, you know, we, we learned to recall a product and we very quickly realized Providence tracking and tracking all these products that go out there was a really important function of our platform and just in general manufacturing. And luckily every product we've ever produced has had, since 2015, we've always had provenance tracking. So every product, whether it had an embedded Bluetooth or NFC chip um, or just a serial number, you can 
take the product back and see exactly when it was produced, where it was produced, mm -hmm. what materials. Um, so that was very helpful. Um, and we did kind of a selective recall where we selectively recalled um, products that used the bad material um, and replaced them. And uh, so that was a huge low because that, that, that type of thing is a company killer um, where you have a, a very important customer that's a big reference that's shipping the most products that you have and you know they, they lose faith in the process. But also we have to now produce thousands of products on our own dime. Um, with relatively at that, that time expensive materials, um, and uh, you know, in hindsight, it was actually a pretty small speed bump, so it didn't actually cost us that much. Um, it wasn't really that notable in our, in our history overall, but I think at the time it seemed like it could be really, really large. Yeah. It turned out to be much smaller than we thought. And I think that was the last big low. Uh, the other lows are, are in general just. Um, Shipment dates, it's kind of like a good problem that we have customers tearing down our door to get our system and we've had to push them off and our, our, our shipment dates have slid as we, um, you know, try to improve the actual products, the product that we're introducing in 2018. We want it to be a very refined system, nothing like um, our current competitors, other people in our market, they'll announce a product a year before it ships, a full year. They'll do a beta and it'll actually be about a year before they actually start shipping the regular product. And even then there might be kinks that have to work out. We're the other way around. We want to ship a mature product um, with world-class yields from day one and then tell the world about it. And they can, they can, they can purchase it. Not, you know, yeah. not, not this other, other way around. So um, there's been ups and downs with, with getting, getting systems out of the door. But I think we're doing the right thing by trying to build a really really great product. So it sounds like 2018 is a really, really big year for Origin. Can you tell us a little bit about things that are coming up in the pipeline? Yes. Um, so we're currently going through a pilot program. So we have two programs going on right now here at Origin uh, from a marketing standpoint. And um, one is what we call our Lighthouse customer program. And the other is called the beta. It's just beta. And um, Sort of previously what we had done was these uh, pilot programs where we were doing the manufacturing ourselves. We wanted to control the whole process at the time, work with different brands, different customers. Um, the new pilot program, the new beta is very different. So the beta is essentially externalizing the entire turnkey system to either brands or manufacturers that are actually going to be doing manufacturing in-house or through a contract manufacturer. Um, with our system, and that, that's a huge leap. Um, it's not the first time we've externalized, we've externalized the partners, and that's on, ongoing. Um, so we've been taking beta customer commitments for that. We haven't gone public with that or, or built press. We've been very selective with which markets um, we go after and which customers we work, we work with. Um, and um, you know, that, that's going really well. We'll be shipping the first systems this year, so in November, to those beta customers. Um, and on the other side, the thing that I'm really excited about is our Lighthouse customer program. And so what that entails is these are much larger brands, much larger companies um, that people know, um, that, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that are producing an entirely new product or category product with additive manufacturing um, 
and you know they're they're potentially going to be using our platform and what we're doing is we're working with them directly to make sure the product that they develop is optimized not just for additive manufacturing that's com one component but our system they t they really take advantage of our system we really hone in on what the costs are what you know what the, what the materials have to be um, and we kind of almost as an extension of our team, we, we work with a dedicated team with these customers. And we only plan to work with five Lighthouse customers. It's, it's very selective. So, so right now I think we've uh, accepted less than 10% of our beta customers into this Lighthouse program. And um, the thing I'm really excited is the outcome of the Lighthouse customer program. So these are companies that in the first quarter of 2018, should be production ready with a product and a cost structure. And um, some of these customers will be taking that product into production throughout 2018 at large scale. Yeah. Um, and I'm super excited about that. And we'll be in 2018 launching more publicly, but also talking much more about the uh, products that come out of this Lighthouse program. What kinds of products do you think additive manufacturing enables and do you see existing products shifting to additive manufacturing because of cost or prototyping benefits or do you see whole new classes of products being created? I think you're going to see both. Um, given even with our even with our platform the cost per unit to produce a product with additive manufacturing is going to be higher than the, the variable cost with injection molding. Um, Something like injection molding, you have to amortize the tooling cost, the inventory risk, and when you kind of start doing that, um, you can be cost competitive to hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of units. But I think the most interesting thing to uh, us is uh, current products as well as entirely new classes of products that you can't make otherwise. And so you know, our initial slogan sort of manufacture the impossible and that, that's what we want to focus on early on as a company, is making products um, that you couldn't make with any other technique or is just you know, much more expensive or lower quality with other techniques. And so a, a great initial example where you have a current product is, uh, you know, for example, dental. There's about 12 different dental products that you can 3D print today. The high quality system, and a lot of a lot of companies already serve this in uh, this market. Um, Vision Tech, uh, Form Labs, three um, D systems, etc. And uh, the you can make the same product with a traditional method. Usually, uh, they'll mill the product with a kind of micro um, uh, milling machine, and it's actually very expensive. And so you get the cost structure right. It's actually less expensive to 3D print the product. And then with, the new, with new materials, you can start making a better product than you could otherwise. And that's an example of something that already exists. And 3D printing has, you know, ev almost every major dental lab now has adopted additive manufacturing for a certain percentage of their, through, their, their output. Um, and some of the larger dental labs are almost entirely moving over to it. Um, and so it's, in that industry, it's not even sexy anymore. It's not, it doesn't matter that it's 3D printed. It's just a way to, it's like a, you know, you have a system that produces a dental model. It doesn't right. matter it's actually a 3D printer. Um, so so, so that, that, that's, that's interesting to us. I think the more interesting aspect um, of 
you know, additive manufacturing in general is producing what we call impossible geometries or using um, what we'll see soon are impossible materials. Materials that have in geometries both that don't have any analog in traditional manufacturing. And um, you know, an example like this lattice structure, you can't mold it. But the, the problem is there's not really a market for <laughs> lattice blocks, right? Um, but when you look at, for example, footwear or aerospace, um, automotive, and, and a few other verticals, they can actually use these lattice structures and they can topologically optimize them to make a much lighter, higher performing part than they could with um, traditional manufacturing. I find that really exciting. And that's just with the geometry. And now we have um, new materials that have no analog in, in traditional manufacturing. And I, th I think material science and, and materials are improving at such a rate um, that you know, there'll be entirely new classes of products that we haven't even thought of that you'll be able to enable. Um, and I think the, the first major class of products that we're seeing hit the market now, and we'll, I think we'll see a lot more in 2018, um, are 3D printed components in footwear. So 3D printing the entire midsole of a shoe, for example, or outer sole, or even the whole thing, um, you know, enables you to produce a, a shoe. First of all, it looks a lot cooler. Um, you can modify the design and have geometries that, that the shoe designer can never have worked with previously, um, but also produce a higher performing shoe that wears slower, that's more comfortable, um, that optimizes for different pressure points of, of, your, of your foot. And then more excitingly, going even further than that, and, and I'm not sure there's really any shoe on the market yet that, that does this, but uh, doing what we call mass customization. So customizing every shoe or every product for an individual user. Um, you know, I think the, the only example where we see a lot of that with, with 3D printing right now is in jewelry. So they'll print the mold or the investment cast and it'll be like a one-off and it's very expensive. Um, but imagine being able to uh, sort of print, you know, printing many components in your, in your footwear or another consumer product and having no variable cost no additional cost to fully customize it. Mm -hmm. So you can produce software or um, scan the environment and do all these crazy uh, techniques that would allow you to, to customize the actual end-use product with no additional cost. And when you think before the Industrial Revolution, um, many products that people consumed and bought were made by craftsmen, made by individual, you'd buy a desk It'd be made by a craftsman, be a beautiful desk. And then we move to mass production, and now all the desks have to be this way. Right. It makes it economical and affordable. Right. But that's now drilled into our head because of, ma of mass production economies of scale. Mm -hmm. you, if I want to customize this desk, I have to produce an entire line of new tooling right. to enable that, whether it's printing on it and doing all this stuff. And usually it's kind of half-baked. Yeah. Um, and it adds a tremendous amount of cost. With 3D printing, you can completely change the geometry material and a lot of these other things with no additional cost. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's gonna revolutionize both existing products, but also break us out of this mass production mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think the first place consumers will see this is in footwear. There's many cases, um, places on the industrial side 
with uh, replacement parts, MRO, where we're seeing more and more of this as an industry. And that, that's exciting because you don't have to warranty, uh, you don't have to inventory parts for a very long time. Um, and you can produce parts that are out of production, um, et cetera. But now you're going to start seeing it on the consumer side. Um, and, and I think it's going to grow uh, as the, uh, the cost of additive manufacturing decreases. Right. You'll see more and more 3D printed products. And the, uh, the whole trend of whether it's 3D printed or not, I think will go away. Mm -hmm. You won't, you know, rather than selling headphones or footwear that's 3D printed as a feature, it'll just be a manufacturing process and you don't really think about it, mm -hmm. the consumer. Yeah. But you'll know that you'll be able to customize uh, intimately the properties of the, um, of the product. Thank you so much, Chris, for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. Please don't forget to check out our website at imaginehuman.com for additional resources and links relevant to this episode. As always, we really appreciate your support, so don't forget to share with friends and family and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. We are always looking forward to meeting interesting people to interview for Imagine Human, so if you know someone, please contact us on social media or email us at imaginehuman17 at gmail.com.